Thank you, everyone, for coming. We're going to have a lovely 45 minutes. Uh, Paddy and I have been chatting through Paddy's poetry selections, and there are some beautiful words in there which we're going to be talking about. Paddy said, please don't give me a long introduction. I read over his biography to sort of remind myself, and this is an extraordinary man that we're um, sitting with, and um, I was reminded of the Yeats poem, Soldier, Scholar, Horseman, He, and All He Did Done Perfectly, because Paddy really is a, a Renaissance man, um, he's been a, a, a soldier, uh, he's worked in business, he, of course, is a politician, a statesman, um, and is a writer and uh, what you might call a scholar as well. hope that's not embarrassing you. Um, and somehow in this, in this very active life, uh, he's found time, like someone like A.P. Wavell did um, as a soldier, to, to, to learn poetry, to study poetry. So let's talk about your first poem. It's by Dunn. Thank you for that introduction, by the way. There used to be a day when, <clears throat> when Tom, I would... Uh, people say, and here's someone who needs no introduction. Not quite true these days. I was walking through Waterloo the other day on my way home. little man came up to me and said, Here, he said, Here, didn't you used to be Paddy Ashton? <laughs> so, so the fact that you've invited me here today seems to indicate that I am, and that's jolly reassuring for me. If not me. Uh, done. Um, some people say done, but I know it's done because... He, um, he married without getting permission and was put in the Tower of London and, um, and there's a line um, of his etched into the cell in which he was um, in, incarcerated which says, his wife's name was Anne by the way it's John Dunn, Anne Dunn, Undone <laughs> Dunn um, was my someone said to me, Paddy, you can have one poet only it would be John Dunn um, he was the gateway really which led me to poetry um, I, um, I was a rumbustious, tearaway, trub turbulent, troublesome schoolboy um, with testosterone cursing through my veins, interested only in the rugby field and the athletics field and the girls at the local high school. Uh, when one day a friend of mine, I must have been 16, said, I tell you what, Paddy, come to the Poetry Society. I said, the Poetry Society? <laughs> the Poetry Society? I won't. So I went along... And the day changed my life. Wonderful man called John Eyre, and um, he read some done, uh, one of some, some of the done love poems, and I was just captured from that moment onwards. And the thing about Dunn, I think, is that you know he had these extraordinary, extraordinary love poems. You could have some of them um, as a the line in a in a rapper nowadays. As one of them begins, "For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love." I mean, you could have that as a sort of modern beginning of a of a of a pop tune. Indeed, there is one of them that begins, "Go catch a falling star, get with child of mandrakes root, tell me where all lost worlds are." And um, but as well as as this extraordinary early life as a courtier and a lover, and he used on many occasions his um, his uh, love poems and used in them profanely sacred images. And then he became the Dean of St. Paul's and was a very, very extraordinary theologian and used in his sacred poems um, love imagery as well. There's one of them that begins, Batter my heart, three-person God. He's a magnificent poem, poet. And when I was a young soldier, my wife gave me um, a leather-bound copy, a bit like S Philip Sidney, this, um, uh, except I'm not any Philip Sidney. Um, she gave me a leather-bound copy of Dunn that I carried in my pack all the way through the funny little war we fought in the Borneo jungles until, um, until the termites set it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and this, I've chosen this. It's quite... It, he gets a bit serious at the end of his life. I've chosen it because there is hidden in this, I think, a huge truth, which is also a truth for us as well as him. 
and it's quite short, and it goes like this. On a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands, and he that will reach her about must and about must go, and what the hill's suddenness resists, win so, yet strive so, that before age death's twilight thy soul rest, for none can work in that night. You can hear an echo of Dylan Thomas. Do not go quiet into that good night in there. And what it is, it, um, the truth it, it reveals to me, and it's a wonderful poem, I, because it, uh, first of all it describes that Dunn had a, a mis- miserable um, journey that led him from Catholicism um, to uh, Protestantism, probably a little bit hypocritically in truth, uh, and he spent all his life... And the truth is that truth is not there to be found, but it is there to be searched for and constantly searched for. And I don't think anybody... Anybody who tells me they've found the truth, um, I, I would immediately tend to disbelieve, but to go on searching for the truth, I think, is one of life's great enterprises. So the line for me is, on a huge hill, truth stands, and he that will reach her about must and about must go. I think I've spent all of my life going about and about and about, trying to find some truth to win out of some miserable situation. So done, it has to be. I could have chosen any one of those love poems, but that's the one, I think, which sums up him and sums up also what he did for me. Now, when do you find... Sorry? Somebody said? No, no, please, please, please. (laughs) Can you hear, guys? Can you hear? Okay? Yes, you can. Good. Right. For goodness sake, tell us if you can't. There's no point in me being here. (laughs) (laughs) Is there there time when soldiering to read poetry? And were you unusual among um, soldiers to be? There's a great tradition of poets and soldiers, um, though I can't remember any any of my Royal Marines necessarily being particularly poetic in their time when we were. But there's Wavell, of course, um, other men's flowers. He liked me. I learned poetry. I learned a lot of it. I must have 80 poems, I suppose, that I have learnt, um, because I just they express things better than anything else you can ever say. And they give me a command of language, the knowledge of language and the use of language, um, which helps me as a writer as well. So, um, no, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a very common soldierly trait, mm. but they're not, they're not, uh, they're, it's not unknown. What about politicians? Are they poetic souls in general? No. <laughs> <laughs> My worry about politicians, to be honest with you, Tom, is they don't read at all. I mean, that, that re- seriously, they do not read books, politicians. And above all, modern politicians don't seem to read history or even know about history, and they don't see the recurring patterns in history. Um, by the way, some of the, of course, there are those great soldier poems, um, the, uh, the ones, that, the, the war poets, which we'll, we'll have in a minute. Um, and there's A. Hausman um, and his wonderful poem, The Shropshire Lad, I was trained as a Royal Marine commando by um, some people who'd fought for Tito and were Royal Marines uh, commando units landed to support Tito in Yugoslavia when I was there um, in Bosnia. And I went to see their war memorial and there's a brilliant line on the side of that of these young men who died. It, said, it says, um, here we lie because we would not shame the land from which we sprung. It is no great thing to die, but the young deem it so and we were young. I don't think you can have a better epitaph to a memorial than that. So it's not unknown by any manner of means. Well, should we move on to uh, uh, your next poem? This right. is um, uh, from the 7th or 8th century, uh, and you're going to read it in, in the Mandarin. 
uh, which yeah, I, you studied as well, yeah, to add to your achievements, um, you could speak Chinese. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the, you should be, be, be aware. I, I studied Chinese for two and a half years as a student in, in, in Hong Kong. Um, and I should warn you that, um, I hope you're a broad-minded audience, um, I, I should warn you that Mandarin is a tonal language. It's monosyllabic, and uh, it's a tonal language, so you differentiate between one word and another um, by the tone in which you say it. And in, in Mandarin, in what they call Putonghua, um, there are four tones. And so if you take the word mai, and it goes mai, 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 and mai, and all of them mean something different. For instance, if you want to buy something, you say mai, and if you want to sell it, you say mai. So it's quite important to get it right. <laughs> and, um, and this gives an almost inexhaustible capacity for pornographic pun, <laughs> which the Chinese adore, and they especially adore it if a foreigner trying to say something nice says instead something absolutely disgusting. <laughs> so here I am sitting around, I've been learning Chinese for six months, I'm sitting around um, at a Chinese dinner for the language school, I'm sitting next door to my wonderful teacher, Madame Ma, who was a convent-educated Beijing lady of a certain age, and uh, <laughs> one of those gaps in the conversation, Tom, um, that nearly always uh, accompanies conversational catastrophe. Um, they were all around the table, my fellow students and my teachers. One of those gaps in the conversation, I turned to her and, wanting to say something in small talk, asked her if she'd ever flown an aircraft. And so the Chinese for that is, um, but I said, which didn't mean, have you ever sat an, have you flown an aircraft? It it said, dear Ma, have you by any chance, Madam Ma, have you by any chance ever sat on a flying penis? <laughs> um, and the, the, the entire audience, the entire um, table collapsed, rolling on the floor. <laughs> My problem was it was another six months before I got to that word, so I hadn't <laughs> Anyway, this is a great poem by a Chinese uh, poet, the greatest Chinese poet. Um, his name is Li Bai. And uh, he lived, as you said, in the 8th century in the Tang dynasty. And um, by the way, the Chinese, Levi wrote his poems um, with four lines, strike quite a strict discipline, not quite the, much stricter than the sonnet, four lines, each of five characters. The, the, the Japanese haiku has four characters, but the Chinese has five. And this is a poem which is called um, Quiet Night Thoughts. And it's a poem written about probably one of the great courtiers of the emperor who's done something bad and has been exiled, sent away to somewhere like Hainan province in the south of China, which is very hot and steamy next to Vietnam. And um, he's remembering home. And he writes this. I'm glad there aren't any Chinese in the audience or I might have said something completely terrible. Um, <laughs> what it says is, the bright moonlight falls on the foot of my bed. It reminds me of frost. I raise my head and look at the moon. I lower my head and think of home. Isn't that a lovely little poem? Just mm, tiny gorgeous. little fragment. And it, it carries all the poignancy and all the sort of sense of regret and loss. And I think the idea that the moon shines, I mean, like this hot climate reminds him of the frost that you'd find on the, on the, um, on the ground in, in Beijing. 
And it's a wonderful poem. He writes, he wrote about a thousand poems altogether, and he is the greatest of all the Chinese poets. Well, would he have been described as a Taoist? The, the Taoist tradition is very much sort of... Yeah, Tang you know, Dynasty, probably. Yeah. But China's been very eclectic about its religions. It mm. doesn't really bother too much. I mean, you can have Nestorian Christianity had established itself well in China by that stage. Buddhist, Taoist. Taoist just means the way. Taoist means... Uh, Tao, Tao is the way. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's probably Tony Blair for me, Tom. <laughs> Um, so I don't know what Levi was and it probably didn't matter terribly because they don't wear their religion very heavily Um, he was a philosopher certainly greatly admired and um, you often see pictures of him on Chinese books Levi now our next poem is uh, Wilfred Owen yeah talking about soldiers and poetry there's um There are very few poets, I think, that can give you a sense of the horror and utter futility of war. A. Hausman's Disruption Lad is certainly one of those. Um, And I just adore this poem, which Peter's going to read, um, because it just reminds you of the utter futility. There's a phrase, I don't know who used it, in war young men go out to die for old men's dreams, and it's so often true, and this you see that coming through, and all the horror of, um, of those times in the First World War. So Peter's going to read it. It is, of course, Dodge at the Corum Est. <clears throat> Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watched the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Very well read. <clears throat> so it, it has been my lot to have um, to have been involved in some of the little wars at the end of empire um, in Borneo, um, in Aden, and on the streets of my own home city in Belfast. And it's one of the reasons why, if you if you been there in those circumstances, there is, there's no glory in war at all. There's none. It's a thing that has to be done, perhaps, would that we could find circumstances which would make it not so. Um, but 
price and cost of it is just unbelievable. It, it, it's sort of, Tom, I hope I'm not going on too long, but it, it's been one of the things that has sort of traced me through my life. I, at the age of um, four, my, my family was in India since 1805, and my mum brought me down as the British were leaving India, five actually. And my first memory um, was um, the train stopping, taking us down to, the, to, to Bombay, and the train stopping outside a station. And I can remember almost smelling the fear um, around me. And then the train pulled very th slowly through the station. And, um, and my mum, as mums would, stuffed my face in her skirts, but like any four or five-year-old, I looked out. And what I saw was a nightmare that has always been afflicted. We've probably exaggerated many times, which was a station covered. They were the first of the partition riots in dismembered bodies in the aftermath of a, of, a, of a massacre. I don't know whether they were Muslims killed by Hindus or the other way around. And, and, and this seems to have been a sort of subterranean thread that has run through my life because the next thing I did was went back to Northern Ireland and I was brought up in Northern Ireland, uh, the son of a Protestant mother and a Catholic father. When I went to school in, in Northern Ireland, the age of six, when I got back, um, they said to me, well, are you, are you, buddy, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? So I went home and I said to my father, Dad, am I a Protestant or a Catholic? And he said, go back and tell them you're a Muslim. <laughs> so I went back and said, I'm a Muslim. And, uh, but are you a Protestant Muslim or are you a Catholic Muslim? <laughs> so this weird thing that then, and of course, I saw it, I knew the troubles were going, then I was a soldier on the streets of Belfast, in command of a commando company in the early, in the late 60s and early 70s. And then, of course, there was Bosnia after that. And this seems to have followed me all my life. And I think it's just, a, you know, the number of times that you see this extraordinary, horrible thing that people who worship a god and all of the gods adhere to the principle that love is the greatest commandment, nevertheless feel able one terrible night when the veil that separates us from the brutes is torn down to do indescribable things to their neighbors when they don't happen to have for not having the same kind of religion. And this is the scourge of our world, and it's always been the scourge of our world. And by the way, when that, when that is torn down, it's almost impossible to get back. I spent 10 years trying to rebuild peace in Bosnia, and with some success, but it just takes a long, long time to leech away all the enmities that war brings with it. Mm. So, Dulce et decorum est pro patria and mori. It is meet and right um, to die for your country. Absolutely not. It is not meet and right to die for your country. And I wish that was a line that echoed through people's brains a bit, a bit more. So, can we go to the fourth? Yes, because it springs straight out of that. That's a wonderful um, insight. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so we have Tagore now. So, this is a poem which I think could be a motto for our fractured, turbulent, and troubled age. It was not written by um, an Englishman. It was written by um, a Bengali, and his name was, anybody know? Rabindranath Tagore. Um, great philosopher, by the way. He wrote wonderfully in English and in Hindi. And he wrote this in 1902 or three, and it's called, very fashionable, very popular today, it's called The Celebration of Diversity wasn't very popular in 1902. We didn't really value diversity. We had ruled the world, we British, didn't we? So we weren't... But here it is. And I think if there is a motto that might get us through a troubled age, here it is. We are all the more one because we are many. For we have left an ample space for love in the gap where we were sundered. Our unlikeness 
shines with the radiance of a common creation, like mountain peaks in the morning sun. You just know that he has the Himalayas in mind, but if there is a revelation for me of the Almighty, the Creator, whatever Almighty you happen to worship, um, or if there is a revelation of our humanity, it does not, it seems to me, lie in our sameness. It lies in our differences. This is the great gift that we have given of creation. And for us to divide ourselves from ourselves on the basis of color or creed or sexuality or nationhood, um, it seems to me is the shortest way to an end to uh, civilization and decency. And that idea that you know, we are all the more one because we are many, um, it seems to me is a motto for a particularly troubled and turbulent, uh, turbulent age. And, and where are these progressive ideas going? Because, I mean, over the last two or three years, you could be, forgive me, t in yeah. thinking it's going, has it been a No, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. What worries me most, and I'll get too much into Brexit, I suppose, but I remember driving back with my wife. I hadn't been asleep that night at all, been up all night, um, and I was driving over Salisbury Plain. And she was driving because she's a much better driver than me. Um, and um, the dawn was coming up and there was a field of poppies ahead of us. And I remember turning to her. I'm afraid tears come to my eyes rather, rather, rather easily. And I said to her, it's not my country anymore. Um, of course it is. I still love this country. It's, I would never live anywhere else. But I, I have to say, I did not realize that this country, whose quintessence, I think, is its capacity for the habit of compromise, for respect, for tolerance. Not all of us, but that's the basic. And that's what we're famous for, for around the world. Could choose an option which was about separation, not about unity. And I feared that we would be seeing a mood of division build up. And, and that, 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 I'm, I'm shocked and quite, and, and quite frightened by an ugly face that has appeared not everywhere, not in communities like this. But nevertheless, I didn't think it was there in that intensity. And you're right, it seems to have appeared again. Um, it seems to have appeared again, except in some places. I'm, by the way, I'm not a pessimist. I'm, a, I'm an optimist. You, you have, you know, as a liberal, you have to be an optimist. In the end, <laughs> why, of course you have to. I was saying earlier on that Oscar Wilde once said that in a minority, in a democracy, the minority is always right, and that has given me great comfort for 30 years in liberalism. <laughs> the... the uh, but, you know, we will rise above this. We will return to our true nature. But this moment of convulsion, um, not the politics of Brexit, you could leave to one side, has revealed the face of our country, which I, maybe I'm just overly sensitive, but I, I didn't expect was there. And, and um, we'll find our way back, I'm sure, but it's just a worrying time, I think. We might come on to that in... in um, Have you better do something funny? Have I? Have we better do something funny? Yes, let, let, let's cheer ourselves up. Um, <laughs> uh, there is before, way. We, before we start getting too miserable and depressed. Yeah. Um, just, the just next time we'll do that, I think. Yeah. Anybody here, anybody here knows Strauss's Four Last Songs? Yeah? They are magnificent. There's a wonderful line um, in the third of the Four Last Songs, which says at the end of it, Tiefen tausend zu leben, to live a thousand times more fully, even in the face of all of the... And it, written at the end of Strauss's life. It's a wonderful, wonderful song. Anyway... So you'll have got from this that I am um, a bit of a poetry freak. Um, and um, we, I, I have to say, my grandchildren go, no, not again. <laughs> so when we go skiing together, and there's no greater joy, I think, in life than 
going skiing with your daughter and your son and their families and your grandchildren, and you're out skiing with them all day, and we have breakfast in the morning. So the routine is that I always give them a breakfast poem, and they all go, no, no, not again, no, not again. And some of them can even, and one of our favorites, uh, I, a little, we have a little chalet in the Savoy, and I stand on the thing and I declaim. Um, and one of my favorites, and actually one of theirs, since we ought to, is uh, how can beat Lewis Carroll? So, here's Lewis Carroll. Um, and it is, of course, the lobster quadrille, or sometimes known as the mock turtle song. Will you walk a little faster, said the whiting to the snail. There's a porpoise right behind me, and he's treading on my tail. See how eagerly the turtles and the lobsters all advance as they gather on the shingle. Will you come and join the dance? Will you, won't you, will you, won't you, won't you join the dance? You, you really have no notion how delightful it will be when they take us up and throw us with the lobsters out to sea. Too far, too far, the snail replied and gave a look askance, said thank you to the whiting, but she would not join the dance, would not, should not, would not, could not, would not join the dance. No matter it how far we go, her scaly friend replied, there is another shore, you know, upon the other side. The further we from England, the closer are to France. So, I love this line, do not quail, beloved snail, but come and join the dance. <laughs> and I, I adore that poem, and there's, there's a whole range of them, but that's the one that I think is, um, and it's got such fun in it. What's it all about? The, the Haven't a clue. Well, that's the point of it. Not the first bloody idea. poetry, yeah. clue in the title, but uh, the voicing is the active uh, life, and the snail is the contemplative life, perhaps? Or? Oh, you are a philosopher, Tom, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know what the hell it is. It's just a nice bloody poem about a whiting and a snail. <laughs> and the, what about um, Lewis Carroll versus Edward Lear? Where do you stand on those two? I like, you mean Edward Lear's um, nonsense poem? Um, yeah, I, I'm a Lewis Carroll fan, don't you think? What? Edward Lear, is that your son? There's a wonderful... There's a wonderful uh, talking about history... I often remind people that um, the Afghan war that we fought recently um, was not new. We fought um, three Afghan wars, by the way. My great-great-grandmother was, um, was um, uh, left Peshawar in the autumn of 18, 1847 to join her husband in, in Kabul and just avoided the massacre and the snows of the first Afghan. Everyone was killed. And then the second Afghan war was, um, was when um, Lord Roberts of Kandahar marched in and there was a Osama bin Laden then too, um, and his name went by the, the, the title of the Wally of Swat. It's a brilliant name. Isn't it? I'm like, who are you? I'm the Wally of Swat. And Edward. <laughs> where, where, sorry, when was that, Paddy? That 1841. Uh, uh, um, and uh, he won that war, by the way. He, he created a hell of a lot of that great war. Uh, the great speech by Gladstone's in the Second Midlothian Campaign, the middle of that war. I'll come on to Edward Lear in a moment. And he, he said to a Briton caught by a jingoistic fervor, just remember what happened with Mr. Blair and the, uh, and, the, and the report on the Iraq war, and he said this, do not forget the sanctity of life in the hill villages of Afghanistan amongst the winter snows is no less inviolate in the eye of almighty God as can be your own. Do not forget that he who made you brothers in the same flesh and blood bound you by the laws of mutual love, and that love is not limited to the shores of this island, but it passeth across the whole surface of the earth, encompassing the greatest along with the meanest in its unmeasured scope. That was Gladstone on the Second Afghan War. Oh, for a politician of that moral stature. Anyway, Edward Lear. So Edward Lear wrote a poem. 
uh, a nonsense poem about the Wally of Swat. And it said, Who or what is the Wally of Swat? Is he short? Is he fat? Is he squat? The Wally of Swat. No one would write a poem today about who or what was Osama bin Laden, would they? But they were. <laughs> he did. And um, those lines that Gladstone uh, read didn't occur to Tony Blair clearly at the time. No, no. I, I fear not. I fear not. And they, uh, by the way, not only did he have the courage to, older than Jeremy Corbyn, by the way, maybe even older than me, um, when he bid to be Prime Minister of Britain, you guys had the, the people of Britain elected him on the basis of that, on the basis of the great Midlothian campaign of the 1870s. We're all getting a bit gloomy here, aren't we? <laughs> that was supposed to be the cheering poem. So have um, you noticed that there's a theme that goes through all this, which is about um, we're all the more one because we are many. Um, can I do the next one? Let us. So, um, twice a year during the Bosnian War, I'm, I'm, because I've been a soldier, I really don't believe in sitting on the green benches in the House of Commons and saying what will go on. I believe in going to have a look at wars and seeing what they're like and getting to understand exactly what's going on on the ground and what people are suffering. So uh, constantly during the Bosnian Wars, beginning in 1992, I would go into Sarajevo twice a year and not just go in and go out, as some people did, but I'd go in and spend three or four or five days in this besieged city in which um, 10,000 lost their lives were being mortared from the, the, the mountains by the Serbs and 2,500 kids as well. And here was this glorious city, this wonderful... If you haven't been, go there. It's the, one of the world's most beautiful cities. It lies in a bowl in the hills. They say it's the world's eastern, most western city, and it's the most western eastern city. It's a fantastic city, hills all around it. And this was the absolute example in the days of Yugoslavia of multiculturalism, of people living together, and of multi-religiosity. And we allowed that to be very nearly wiped out by the Serb monster, by the Serb machine gunners on the hills above um, Sarajevo for a siege that went on longer than the siege of Leningrad at the end of the day. And uh, then they sent me back there to be the high representative, invested with ridiculous powers. Um, I mean, powers that ought to make a liberal blush on behalf of the international community. I could pass laws and sack people... Uh, and goodness knows what. I didn't, but I could have done. Um, and I absolutely adore. I learned Bosnian. My wife was with me. We spent four years there. And here I am in my late 60s now. And another culture, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to immerse myself in it. And I adored Sarajevo. And there is a great Sarajevan writer called Ivo Andrić, who won the Nobel Prize in 1961. Um, and he summed up what Sarajevo was for me. We lived in a little house above the, above the, the main area, the Stadigrad, the, the old city. And this is what Ivo Andrich wrote. It's not, really, it's not really poetry, but it is if you listen to it. And I love Andrich's sentences. They're like the great rolling of, the, of a breaker, and suddenly they crash onto that. I wish I could write like that. They, you can feel the sentences building up to a great swell and then crashing with onto, onto the beach. And so here's what he wrote, and this is exactly how I remember Sarajevo when I was there, and especially during the war, when they still went on making sure they preserved the tolerance of, the, of the, this great city. Whoever lies awake in Sarajevo hears the voices of the Sarajevo night. <clears throat> the clock on the Catholic cathedral strikes the hour with weighty confidence. 2 a.m. More than a minute passes, to be exact, 75 seconds. 
I counted. And only then, with a rather weaker but piercing sound, does the Orthodox Church announce the hour and chime its own 2 a.m. A moment after it, the tower clock on the Bay's Mosque strikes the hour in a hoarse, faraway voice that strikes 11, the ghostly Turkish hour by the strange calculation of distant and alien parts of the world. The Jews have no clock to sound their hour, so God knows, God alone knows what time it is for them by the Sephardic reckoning or the Ashkenazi. Thus at night, while everyone is sleeping, division keeps vigil in the counting of the late small hours and separates these sleeping people who awake, rejoice and mourn, feast and fast by four different and antagonistic calendars and send all their prayers and wishes to one heaven in four different ecclesiastical languages. Isn't that wonderful? Absolutely wonderful. You can hear those, those sentences. They go, on for, they go on for sort of half a minute, don't they, some of them? And I love this sense of, you know, time and the, and the ticking of the clock um, and all of those prayers going to one heaven. There's a line in, in the Quran somewhere which says, there is one God but many ways to him. And that sums that up perfectly. Uh, as a diplomat... Um, uh, I was never a very good diplomat. What did you learn about the, the conversation? You know, how did you manage to get people to change their position or um, moderate their actions? I'm, uh, by the way, I'm not a very good diplomat. I, I was trained as a commando officer. I only know one way to deal with something. That's fixed bayonets in charge. Um, I don't, I'm not very good at the subtleties of politics, as my friends will tell you. Um, the answer was um, that, that um, I, I, I did have extraordinary power, really power that um, an international, somebody living, governing another country shouldn't have. Um, but I tried to use that power very sparingly because in the end... You know, if people say, no, Patty, we're not going to do that, um, then um, uh, your power's gone. So I used it very sparingly, and I spent a lot of time living with the poorest in Sarajevo, so people knew that I knew how they lived their lives from all the communities, and I acted, you know, in, in treated them all. So, I don't know, it just sort of worked. The other tricky thing that I... I'm quite a good plotter, but don't tell anybody. For <laughs> God's sake, I'm really quite good at conspiracies. I can, I can do a long-term... And the Bosnians regard themselves as being really good at conspiracy, but they got a bit surprised when I managed to outplot them in the long term. Um, they, they, I had great fun there, and they're, they're wonderful, wonderful. They remind me of of Northern Ireland in a way um, because they're rumbustious and, and um, they, there's a line by Guy Cy Sulzberg which says they love and make war with equal, with equal passion. I love them to bits. There are two great Bosnian sayings um, uh, which I adore. One, one is Da which means my neighbor's cow is dead. That makes me happy. <laughs> are there any Bosnians or anybody speaking Bosnian in the audience? Good. In which case, I will tell you, I'll give you the next one. Um, can I? Yes, I suppose. I, are they a very mature audience? They're terribly mature, aren't you? you, you, you you're not going to fall off the seat in apoplexy, are you? The other Bosnian saying, which is very rude, a lot of Bosnian sayings are, <clears throat> I proposed it to Nick Clegg as the secret motto for the coalition with the Tories. And it goes, Lakaya tujim kurtsem gloginje mlatiti, which means... It's easy to beat thorn bushes 
with other people's pricks. So, <laughs> this is very Bosnian, let me tell you. <clears throat> so we'll pass over that. I do hope this isn't being recorded anywhere. Now, should we go on to our seventh final and one? final poem? Yeah. Do you know, if you're fascinated by poetry, um, you find it in all the oddest places. Um, so here is a near-perfect poem. Um, and I don't know who wrote it. If you travelled on the tube about a year ago, 18 months ago, I had a little series of poems on the tube. And did you ever see those? Uh, and I saw this one day. I, and I, I'm pretty sure it was anonymous. And I... I um, I uh, memorized it. And it's just a... Per so who could find romance on the London tube? Can you imagine? Um, this bloke could, or this girl could. Maybe it was a girl. And it goes, As it is on the tube, before the train arrives, pushing the air in front of it, swirling the papers, making the platform jump and the rails sing, so it is always in my heart before I see you. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that absolutely glorious? So there is somebody waiting for the tube to arrive and looking forward to seeing his or her lover. And so as it is on the tube before the train arrives, pushing the air, swirling the papers, making the platform jump and the rails sing, so it is always in my heart before I see you. It's an absolutely perfect little poem, and I adore it. I just wish somebody could find out whoever wrote it. There are some... There are some I love the poem... Another kind of poem that takes you by surprise um, and changes the dimension of your viewpoint. Um, we've done a bit of lot, lot on war today, and I better not talk too long because you want some time for straight. But there's, a, there's quite a well-known poem, which I think is another perfect little short poem. Um, and it's written, about again, about war. Um, and it goes... I bet you can... Do, some of you can do the first line, see if you can. Um, in Flanders' field, the poppies grow. In Flanders' fields, the poppies grow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our places. And high above, the lark still bravely sings, unheard amongst the guns below. Now, if you think about that poem, it starts of you as the observer, watching the crosses, looking at the crosses, thinking about them. By the end of the poem, you're there. You're under the lark singing and the, and, and, and the, gun, the guns below. It's an absolutely perfect little poem, in my view. There you go. Enough. Before we move on to questions, can we talk about one uh, episode in your life that jumped out at me? Go on. Um, we it's going to be rude. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> we talked about you know, Paddy's amazing uh, Renaissance man life and all the different things he's done. He's had a very active life. Um, but there's one period where he was actually on the dole yeah. uh, for nearly a year um, following the collapse of the sheepskin coat company mm. that you're working for. Mm. Um, and remarkably, uh, Paddy went from being on the dole to being an MP, uh, which I think is unprecedented yeah. uh, and hasn't happened. Um, yeah, that's so kind of you, Tom. Most people pass over this. So <laughs> <laughs> did, you have a good, did you have a nice year off and a, a bit of leisure time? To it's the worst time I can remember in my entire life. Um, no, I, pe people always remember Paddy Ashton, ex Royal Marine, blah blah. Um, actually, I'm the, I am the only member of Parliament ever to be elected from the unemployed register. Um, it took me eight years to win my seat in Yeovil. Um, 
And I couldn't have done it without my family, and particularly my wife. We were down to our last 100 pounds at one stage. And I was made unemployment at the employed. I had to make, I worked for, do anybody remember Moreland's sheepskin coats? Remember that? Yeah, of course you do. Um, so I worked for Moreland's sheepskin coats for, of Glastonbury um, because I needed a job. And I loved it. And every job I've had, I've learned a huge amount. Uh, I was a soldier. I was, uh, I was, I have to eat you if I tell you what I did. Well, I studied Chinese and then I, I, had, I went and worked for the foreign office. Well, it wasn't really the foreign office. It was a sort of sneaky part of uh, it. We worked, we, I'm not allowed to say what kind of organization it was, um, but, but it's no longer, it, it, nowadays it's in a, a building which is just south of Vauxhall Bridge. <laughs> and, and in my day, in my day it was um, at 100 Westminster Bridge Road, it was called Century House. And we were told when we were there, we weren't allowed to we nip in very quick, get in the door, in case the Russians saw us. Um, but on the other hand, uh, in those days, London buses had a London bus driver uh, and a conductor. And the, the 159 bus that I still take in every morning to the House of Lords used to stop outside Lambeth North Tube Station. The conductor would say, North, uh, Lambeth North Tube Station, all spies the light here. <laughs> so I suppose the Russians got to know about it in the, in the end, don't you think? Anyway, so I did that, and then, and then I, I um, uh, was out in Geneva with a day job and, a, and, a, and the, another job. This is the end of the Cold War. And then I gave that up and went into politics. Uh, my friends thought I was mad, which I was, with two children. The party was, um, the day I was selected, my leader was arraigned for um, conspiracy to murder in the Old Bailey. It's, uh, and we were within the margin of error. It took me eight years and, and two periods of unemployment. And, and the last one was a year long. Um, we had to make, I had to make all my own men and women, all my staff redundant, and myself as well. And then for a year, I went around looking for jobs. I must have applied for 150, I suppose, in that time. And there was always turned down, turned down, turned down, turned down. And, you know, it's not a, I, I didn't plan my life, Tom, in any way. My life has happened to me by accident. But it turns out that the various things I did, including that very painful period of being unemployed, was a very, very good um, apprenticeship for for what I had to do then as an MP. And I think one of the problems about our politics today, if I can get onto politics, is that um, far too many of our politicians have never done anything else but politics. None, you know, they went into politics in short pants and they've been there ever since. And although, as I said, I didn't plan it, God's been good to me because to have had that background um, helped me to do the job I then had to do far, far better than anything else, I think. Sorry? Well, yeah. No, no, you don't have to pass an exam. I'd rather they had experience than exams, though. I mean, you know, they've done something. But all our leaders are like that. I mean, there are a few coming on now, you know, who've been soldiers in Afghanistan or something. So perhaps fewer now. But it, politics in my time has become a profession. And when I went into it, I think it was a calling. Mm. Um, and, you know, there were people with real hinterland. There was Ed, uh, Edward Heath and Dennis Healy. And, you know, they, they, were, they were people who had done other things in their lives. Mm. I never quite trust a politician if all they can do is politics. Mm. Because they, haven't, they haven't quite seen life. They don't I think they've seen life. life. I think they've had experiences. Um, and I think it's become a, a much discredited profession. And I can, I can see why. Mm. We're getting on to serious politics now. Who wants to ask me? <laughs> Um, well, before we go on to uh, questions from the audience, can we have a round of applause for that really beautiful insight into Paddy's work?
Um, and fantastic stories, real wisdom, and uh, a beautiful selection of poems. Um, so I think we've got about ten minutes, um, and there's a microphone here. Uh, can we have a question, the gentleman there? Can you, can you try and speak up? Well, you have got a microphone, but <coughs> make it clear. Um, can you hear that okay? Sure. Yeah. Well, if Gladstone was post-60 into his 70s when he was Prime Minister, what are you messing about at coming to Ledbury? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I... I um, <laughs> I'd much, rather, I'd much rather be here if it's okay by you. <laughs> I don't think I'm... Anyway, I, my, day is, uh, my day is well gone. I, I've had a fabulous life, and I've, I've, I've you know... If, if, um, if it all ended tomorrow, um, I mean, I would spoil my whole afternoon, obviously, but, but, um, but I wouldn't have reason to complain. And um, I just think it's, uh, you know, there are other people who can do this. I, I'm delighted to be able to help and support my party when I can, but I, I don't think... I, uh, thank you very much. And uh, if you go on making propositions like that, I'll put my <laughs> wife on to you. <laughs> but there is a point about older politicians there, isn't there? I mean, um, Corbyn's sort of unusually old for today, but that wasn't the case... No, and, and that's not a bad thing, and Vince Churchill. Cable looks as though he'd be the leader of our party, and I think that's fine. Mm. Um, by the way, Gladstone, um, he was a remarkable man, an utterly remarkable He's a sort of force of, force of nature, really. He walked nine miles from Chester Station to, to his house in Hedgen and chatted to the as prime minister in his 70s um, when he arrived on the train. Um, but I think he was... There was a famous... His, his wife once said to him, I imagine over breakfast, she said to him, oh, William, if you are not such a great man, you would be a big bore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the kind of thing my wife says to me. <laughs> my wife says to me, yeah, behind every great man, there's a surprised woman. <laughs> Just here. Gladstone, mm. uh, a trip to his library is absolutely fantastic Amazing, where he's annotated all of his books in his library. It's well worth the visit, yeah. isn't it? It is amazing. Yes. It is amazing what that man did. Just amazing. And he was a force of nature. There's a... Um, yeah, quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. But a bore, probably, as well. <laughs> yeah, but it is a lovely residential library. I've stayed there. You can um, stay there in rooms and work in the library all yeah. day. Absolutely yeah. amazing. I um, write my own books now, and I, I, I really enjoy I do a lot of research. My next book, by the way, I thought I might as well sell that to you while I'm here, um, um, is going to be... Um, an extraordinary story that has never come to light. It's going to be called A German Tragedy, and it's about the resistance to Hitler in the Second World War. And it, these are people of astonishing moral courage. The theory is that we believe that the opposition to Hitler really only began when then Germany was losing. It's absolutely not true. There were people from 1935 who risked their lives and committed treachery to their country because they believed they needed to be true to their country's true nature, the nature of the, the values of Beethoven and Schiller and Goethe, um, and, um, and, and died horribly. I mean, these are extraordinary brave people who literally helped us win the war. And it's, it's a story which is not known and not understood and needs to be. So I, 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 my wife calls it my train set. 
um, when I go upstairs and I start writing. And I write my books. I do a lot of research um, in the archives. Uh, I can do French, and I can do enough German to be able to know if a document's important. Um, and so I write them on trains coming to Ledbury and uh, the little corners of my life. I'm always typing away. And so Gladstone was reading books and annotating them. I'm trying to write my own. It's good fun, too. Hello, Paddy. Hi. Um, I heard you speak on platforms for the Remain campaign last summer um, with other politicians, and where they were giving us the stats and the figures, it was your oratory that really got people oh applauding. Um, and I wonder if you have anything to say about what you've learnt through your reading, through reciting poetry, about the power of the way that you put the message across to reach people. That's such a good question. Mm. The answer is that I love language. I adore language. And, and poetry, of course, is a classic. Um, probably the greatest exposition of the use of language. So maybe, maybe I, I certain, I, I didn't start being a good speaker, by the way. Whether I'm a good speaker now is a matter for, for other people to judge. But I started a very bad speaker, and I had to learn it. I had, to learn how to, I had to learn how to use my voice um, as well. I went, to a, I went to a voice coach, and I'm not at all you know, ashamed of that. And for a politician, their voice is what a saw is to a carpenter. You have to learn how to use it. And well, the, the, the um, politicians in Rome went to... Yeah, but they, they did. Cicero. I've never studied in that form. Mm. But certainly, yes, poetry does help. But you, you touch on something really important. I think... I think this is the most discreditable and wretched campaign, by the way, on all sides. Um, because one side lied, and they did lie, but the other side hyperbolized, and that's a kind of a lie as well. And They were unsustainable, and the public didn't know which way to go. And in those circumstances, the Remain campaign, and I warned them about it, um, I knew we were going to lose that about five or six weeks out. I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach. And what they did was what the Remain campaign was feed you with information. Fact, 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 fact. Actually, in these circumstances, when there's a really big decision to take, and particularly one that is quite confusing, it is emotion that carries people. And I'm afraid the Brexiteers understood that, and the Remain campaign didn't. And so if what you saw was a certain contrast with me deliberately trying to use emotion, reminding people why we came together as Europeans, reminding them of the record of, uh, of what we did after war, um, there are lots and lots of flaws in the European Union, um, and they ought to be put right. But there are lots of flaws that I could name in Westminster too, and that should be put right. Um, but So I was deliberately trying to appeal to a different kind of argument, and it was, you obviously very cleverly spotted it, um, it was an argument based more on something in here than, than, than raw fact. Human beings aren't very good at taking facts in, by and large. They, they sort of confuse them, I think, for, mm. for a while. Certainly confuse me. I don't know about you. Mm. But. That's a great question. Yeah. Hello. Um, you alluded to kind of being an, an exception in that you read as a soldier um, and as a, a politician. And I'm wondering, is there any way we can get more leaders and more <laughs> soldiers reading? <laughs> and what, know, what that might do, I guess. Do you know, I, I, I think so. Look at some of the books, some of the really remarkable books that have come out of Afghanistan. I mean, there is a tradition of soldiers writing about war, which is extremely, goes right back to the Peninsular War. Um, and some of the brilliant diaries kept by ordinary private soldiers in the Peninsular War are astonishing. 
And there are some very, very good books um, written as a result. So I don't think is, it is that, that um, they, they are, the profession of soldering has lost any of its ability to use language or, 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 or to tell stories. Um, so I, I don't think we're any weaker um, or diluted as far as soldiers are concerned. I think that still is there. It's still strong. And some good poetry too, by the way, um, out of the recent wars. Um, it, it's politicians I don't understand, to be honest with you. I just don't. I, I mean, it's very easy, you know, old men get together and say, it's not as good as it was in our days. <laughs> yeah. Well, but even taking that into account, it is, there is something odd that's gone on in, 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 in politics that I, I, I can't get my mind around. Um, and it is the fact that there's this bizarre... I mean, I, my own view is that if you're going to go into politics, you have to be in some form a somewhat misshapen personality. I mean, it's a strange thing, but you have to be. I'm, doubtless I am too. Because, I mean, why would you want your face all over the place? Why would you want this intrusion into your private life? Um, so, uh, so you have to start off from the presumption that politicians are, by their nature, a bit strange. But I have to say, this lot are stranger than most. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, Paddy, politicians, um, can you generalise... Oh, we're being nasty about politicians. Look, <laughs> as well as that, as well as that, let us record, please, because we should, that although we get fed up with our politicians, no doubt with me too, and although we are dealing with, you know, members' expenses, this, by and large, is the least corrupt democratic political system in the world, and the vast majority of politicians do really good service for their community and their country and are genuinely people mm. who, in great sincerity, want to do good and serve the nation and their community extremely mm. well. There are the exceptions. We know who they are. But I don't think you're right to condemn a whole class, and I'm sure mm. nobody in this, in this place would do that. Mm. You were, I, I stopped you asking a question, Tom. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I, in fact, you answered it because I was, oh, I was going to ask that, that very thing. Um, uh, politics I've met are... are most of them are genuinely motivated by wanting to yeah. give something. Um, the it's almost unselfish, but there obviously are some who are more yeah, in well, there are some, like, and listen, I'm sorry, politicians you elect are a reflection of the general population. Mm. And so there are strange people, and there are strange people in politics too. But, but you, ask people, you ask people a question, very interesting. Ask people this question, um, do you like politicians in Westminster? The answer is no. Do you like your MP and the work that he or she does in your community? Mm. And the answer is, yes, they do. Mm. So there's something quite interesting there. Yeah. My own view is that, and this, it's very difficult to say this without sounding sort of self-righteous, but the reason, I, the reason politics was the business for which my gifts, such as they are, were made is because I love, I'm sorry, this does sound self-righteous, but I can't think of another way of doing it. I love the business of service to my community and to my nation. It's what I've done all my life. And I think we forget sometimes that the nobility of service to others is something that we regard as slightly demeaning. And it's not. It's something very noble, um, if you get it right. And some of us don't, of course. Um, so it's, it's become... I, I can only use the phrase, it's, it, is, it is less a calling than it was and more a profession and all the poorer as a consequence, in my view. Um, what about the Lords, Paddy? How does that oh, the, Lords. the atmosphere? Well, I only the... went into the Lords to get rid of it. <laughs> I mean, it is a monstrous. It is monstrous that we have an appointed second chamber. 
I never use my title, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that Tom didn't agree not to. I mean, it is monstrous. I mean, there are, there are 84 bicameral changes. We must have a bicameral change. You can't have a domination, just a monocameral parliament, because otherwise it would just do stupid things. So you need two chambers. There are 84 or five of them in the world. Four are not elected. And one is Belarus. The second is Ukraine. The third is Britain. And the fourth is Canada. So, I mean, we send young men out to die for democracy, and we don't even have... There's no connection between democracy and the House of Lords whatsoever. And yet, it, it, is, it is an affront to the principle that I believe in, which is you only get the power to make the people's laws if you've been invested with the power through the people's ballot box. And it doesn't. Only two ways to get into the House of Lords, by the way. I said this the other day in one of the debates when I was trying to persuade them to get rid of it. Um, and they didn't like it very much either. Um, <laughs> I'm not a very... I, 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 I don't think Parliament... I don't like Parliament much, and it doesn't particularly like me either, I don't think. Um, but but anyway, <laughs> there are only two ways of getting into the House of Lords. One is you're a friend of the Prime Minister, and the second is your great-grandmother slept with a king. <laughs> and by the way, I think the second often produces far better Lords than the first. Uh, and so there are... I mean, honestly, I, I just think... We should, have a, we should have an elected second chamber. The reason I'm there is because you have to be able to cast your vote in the Lords to get rid of it. You have an elected second chamber. It ought to be elected on a different franchise from the, uh, from the Commons. It ought to be so constitutionally constructed that it accepts the primacy of the House of Commons. So if the House of Commons insists it should go through, the Salisbury Convention basically turned into law. And we ought to have it elected so that it represents the regions of Britain and is elected through proportional representation. Now, that would be a healthy democracy. Our present one, in my view, is not. The House of Lords does good work when it comes as a revising chamber, sending, uh, revising the idiotic laws sent up from the Commons. But it has a second job to do, which is to act as a check and balance on the executive. And this it doesn't do because it can't do it because it's a creature of the executive. It is made by the Prime Minister to reflect the majority that they've got in the House of Commons, and therefore it can't hold them to account. So I'm, I'm in the House of Lords to get rid of it. <laughs> well, it's six o'clock. I think we've, we're going to wind up there. Um, can I just say thank you, because this has been such a fascinating hour. Um, thank you to Paddy for sharing these poems. Um, <laughs> and entertaining us and moving us all in equal measure. Thanks so much. That was a real treat. Um, well, let's have the out. Thank you.